Good evening, Patriots. And it's Monday, January 30th in the year 2023. East Coast, you have now entered into the Tuesday zone. Mondays are always kind of a crazy day. I'm going to talk a bit about food tonight in a different way, a scriptural sense. But it's an in- interesting thing how much war is being waged on the uh, sustenance. And it's far more than just health. This gets into a spiritual war against us in a very devious way. One thing that we do know is this war continues. They're going to be going after food, which we know, and they're also going after our finances. So make sure you're doing everything you can to keep your investments safe. Are the Biden administration's New Year's goals of tax and spend and turned a blind eye to inflation at odds with your goals of securing your savings? When you finally had enough of the games government is playing with your savings and retirement, diversify into gold with Birch Gold. I am tired of my money being impacted by stupid decisions by leaders in Washington. For over 5,000 years, gold has withstood inflation, geopolitical turmoil, and stock market crashes. And here's the great news. You can still get it. In fact, you can own gold and silver in a tax-sheltered retirement account. Birch Gold makes it easy to convert an IRA or 401k into an IRA in precious metals. Here's what you need to do. Text the word BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898 to claim your free info kit on gold. With almost 20 years experience converting IRAs and 401ks into precious metals IRAs, Birch Gold can help you. Protect yourself with gold today by texting BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to the number 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews. Secure your future with gold. Start today with a free info kit. There is zero obligation to make this request. Just text BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898. Birch Gold. Again, text BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898. This is the best way to start the new year. And now that we are at the end of January, well into the new year, I hope you have taken good care of your wealth. Birch Gold is fantastic, great company. So all you have to do is text BARDS to 989898. Good company, really worth checking them out. And again, it doesn't cost you anything, so check it out. I was going through some things before the show and just looking at the measure of war that's being waged on our food supply. And this is really evil. To kind of roll back first to the Industrial Revolution in 1700s and 1800s in England, where this was a what we're witnessing right now, which we would call Agenda 2030, has already been played out. It was played out in the transition from mercantilism to capitalism, and it was done in England, in UK, in the whole UK. And they executed what were called the Land Closures Act, which forced people off of their farms and into the cities. They consolidated people into the cities, and then they made them dependent upon the food that the industrial mechanisms were creating. I've mentioned this before, and it's very. I'll have to dig it up and actually read it at some point here, but Karl Marx wrote a pretty good treatise on this and pretty good detail history on what was happening to workers' bread. And so bread was being filled with things like talc in replacement of flour, 
They were using sawdust in replacement of flour. And people weren't really noticing the difference. The nutritional levels were, were plummeting. And, of course, the industrialists were making money hand over fist because they, didn't, they were using up industrial waste, basically, to feed the people. And in so doing, they were able to keep people dumb, lower, lower in energy, or at least on the edge, and keep them enslaved because they required what they provided them, which was a wage, in lieu of doing actual work in the fields. It's really interesting, just on a sidebar on that, how many people I come across that have done the research on Marx, and he's ultimately probably tied in one way or another to the Rothschilds. There's, but it's, I will guarantee you none of them have read his work. And the reason I highlight that is just because somebody is working for the other side doesn't mean they're not going to tell you things that are extremely valuable. Mark's work in Das Capital, Volume 1, and later Volume 2 and 3 were finished by Ingalls after, posthumously after Mark's died. But Volume 1 is particularly spectacular because it really gets into the details of how profit is generated. And it became the foundation for the communist movement as a way to reject and prove that there was all this excess wealth. And Marx's treatise was directed specifically at Adam Smith, who was the kind of the legend of economics at that time. And his, much of his work was based on mercantilism, which was just a little, it was a very different form of, of economics. And much of that was rooted in the guild system where Marx is looking at the breaking of the guild system and the rise of ultimately the workers who were unaligned. And from that comes the union system. So that's just a little context, but food was central. And it's interesting because we don't value food here much. Food is more of a consumptive piece. We used to value food. We used to value meals together as families. But as we broke the family down, food has become a consumptive issue. And so when we are going to do a meal, we're going to choose what's the quickest, easiest way to do that meal many times, and we're not going to think about the process. And preparing food is very God-connected. It's sustenance. It's the sustenance of life. And so the process is as important as what we eat. And so we have to really, I think, really, if we, one of those areas that we have to retool a lot in our lives to enjoy the process as much as we enjoy the consumption. There was a, a martial art master in Japan, story goes, and he was sitting with his student one day and they had set up private time to talk. And usually if you're working with a high level martial arts master, they'll find time for their, higher, uh, their better students to sit and just discuss things that are not related necessarily to martial arts. Maybe they are, but it's about the development of the spirit and the soul. So they were having one of these moments and they were sitting in Zazen facing each other politely. This is in Japan, and a, and a courier comes in. And 
there was what was at issue with the master is that he knew his father was sick. And so the courier delivered a letter. Now, in the older world, France used to do this even up until about 1990s. I don't know if, if they still do. Some of the older world, European cultures may still do it. But when there's, when there's a death announcement, they border the letter in black. And it's the notice that someone has died. And so this letter was delivered. And the master received it, and it was the notice for his death. Obviously, it was a notice he had, uh, and in unfortunately anticipating the one that had been nagging to him was about his father. And he didn't open it. He set it aside. And the student looked at him. He says, aren't you going to open it? And he said, no. He says, when I sit with that, I'm going to be with that letter, but right now I'm being with you. This is a lot about living in the moment. And it's what we don't do enough of with God. We don't sit and say, Father, I want to be with you. I want to experience this with you. And so I go back to food. I'd be curious how many people engage every time they cook rather than the cooking of the process or rushing on time. And this is where it came from. I'm going to tell you because just before the show, I've been running around today. It's been a long day. Um, started with an early morning interview that will be on tomorrow night's show, my normal prep for all the shows, had the bended knee show, had to unload the trailer with a bunch of stuff that I'm going to I put in the burn pile and then go in and pick up my new ATV, put that in the trailer, brought it back just in time to get on the barge show, did the barge show, went out, unloaded the ATV, had to do my midnight run, of course, or my night run, which was awesome, racing around on my ATV at night, which I love. Reminded me of Afghanistan. It was great. And then came back in and checked the time, closed out the previous show. And then I had about, I had a quick telephone call, and then I had about 30 minutes, 20, 35 minutes to prepare a quick bite and I'll do a main dinner later because I really hadn't eat, eaten all day. And I went through a, and made something quickly. I just I made some pasta very quickly. And, and when I say quickly, so it was about 20 minutes all said and done. 20, actual time was like 22 minutes. And that left me with about six minutes to eat, which is ridiculous. But here's my point. In that process, what I caught myself focusing on was the process, not the experience with Father. And this is where I'm really, where it really struck me is like, man, I know better because I love to cook and I love the experience of cooking with Father. I like to do things with Father. And in this Russia that we get into many times, we forget that simple other step and we don't open the door and invite him in. I stand at the door and knock, and I wait for you to invite me in, and we don't do it. And this changes the value of how we see nourishment. Because nourishment isn't just food. We know that. There's a deep part of spiritual nourishment that we all need. And it's the sustenance that really makes the difference for us. We consider... 
John 6.35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Or John 6.27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For now on him, God the Father, for on him, God the Father has placed the seal of approval. These are the spiritual nourishments that are so important in our lives. But the food is used as a metaphor. And I would argue that it's not in, it's intentional. That it's not just an, a metaphor to make in terms of understanding nourishment, but I think it's an it's an, a bridge that needs to be made even when we prepare and eat food. We're expected to bless food, to pray for food and pray over food. And so much of that is a process of bringing the Holy Spirit into our experience. When we're going to prepare food, it is a process that should be shared with God because it creates a, an endemic, so to speak, blessing within the food. But the whole process changes and time changes. You can tell God you're in a hurry. I could have said to Father tonight, I'm in a hurry, let's do some spaghetti or just do some pasta. I didn't do spaghetti, just pasta. Because I'm not, I'm not a big red sauce guy. I love pasta, butter, cheese, like uh, Romano or, or a, a good Romano or a good Parmesan. And just make it simple. I, I, I love my pasta that way. And it has to be well cooked, properly cooked. It's just usually about the stuff I, the pasta I have is about 11 minutes and not too much more, not too much less. So we end up appreciating food more. And that's appreciating one of the sustenances of life. And, and so we gain an appreciation for the spiritual nurturing of life as well. The French do a pretty good job. When you talk about bread in France, it's a great deal more than bread. You can talk about bread and the flour the bakers use, and they try to use, many of the bakers try to seek the older grains, which is important, to get past the modern hybridization of wheat, which is another one of these things like corn that they've almost destroyed. But there's much more to bread. Bread in itself, breaking bread is a spiritual experience. But for the French, bread is a cultural issue. Fresh bread every morning. The French, and you get to the rural areas, getting a fresh loaf of bread from the baker, which you might get one every morning, depending on your family size. You might get one once a week or twice a week. But no bread is ever wasted either. French toast, as we know it, was known as pen perdu in French. And it was taking the old dried baguette and cutting it up in pieces and then soaking it in egg and milk to re revitalize it and then cooking it so that it was not to be wasted. Most of the things that we, it's funny how many, when you dig into how many different things we eat that actually came from poor experiences. Southern France in particular used to be a very poor area. 
one of the cherished breads even today is a chestnut bread, but chestnut bread came from people that had no money for flour and were taking chestnuts and grinding them up to make a chestnut bread. Anyway. But food is a valuable piece and experience in who we are. And it's a bridge and a gateway to, to, so, to so many things. It, it builds our fellowship. It, in, it enhances our body healing. There is the component of experiencing the process of making bread, which is very much cathartic and very spiritual in its process. It teaches us patience. It teaches us timing. It teaches us to observe and to see things beyond our sight so that you can begin to sense when something's done, even when you may not be able to see it. If you are enjoying cooking, you're going to, you discover the subtleties of flavor, which is another amazing gift God's given us. And I say these things because it's important to realize how the war on food is being waged in our world. Flavor is one of these things that they're trying to normalize or, or I'll use the term, I'm going to make it up, vanilla eyes, meaning they're, they're making everything bland and tasteless. That's dulling us down spiritually. My mom picked up a couple tomatoes from the store the other day. The first time we've had to had store-bought tomatoes in a year. And our tomatoes are just going to get, I'm just going to put them in starters this weekend. And so we have, obviously, it's going to be three months before we have tomatoes. And we still have plenty of dried tomatoes, and we've got canned tomatoes, and we have all that. But it, just for the other night, she picked up some fresh tomatoes. And they were pretty much like eating a piece of cardboard. It's not her fault. It's what commercial pot- tomatoes are like. But that's across the board on all things. And when we aren't growing our food and we're relying on someone else to produce it for us in mass, the first step is some corners have to be cut in order for us to be fed without being part of the process of growing. It's like going to a restaurant and having all sorts of additives to your food and then complaining that, you know, like a great one is like going to Chinese food and having somebody put in MSG. I react to MSG. I can't stand it. And it just, and then you're, you're like, well, I can't believe they put in MSG, but you're going to their domain and they're trying to serve many people out of a kitchen. So of course, then you get to the, you know, we start going in our, in our convenience mindset. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to go to a farm to table place and I'm going to go to it. And each time you do that, the cost keeps going up and it becomes an elitist process. God didn't design us to be elitist. Didn't say that we can't enjoy some things like that, but the principal issue of food should be shared and appreciated for everybody. And it's the, it's the experience of food that brings us together and does so much for us. Food is, one, is part of one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Luke 9, 12 is where it begins. Now the day was ending, and the twelve came up and said to him, Dismiss the crowds so they, can, they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. Because here 
we are in a secluded place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. But they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. But he said to his disciples, have them recline to eat in groups of about 50 each. They did so, and each had them all recline. And he told the, the five, he, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and gave them to the disciples again and again to serve the ground. And they all ate and were satisfied, and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, twelve baskets full. Father's told us over and over that he'll provide for all things. And I think it's what we miss in a, I don't think, it is what we get stumbled on in this commercial world. We're so detached from the basic origins. What I love about that story is not, I mean, obviously it's awesome that Jesus could break some bread and make a whole bunch more, but that's not really what I would zero in on every time. I zero in on the bread, the flavor of it. I've traveled enough to have experience with bread. And I mean, bread is a staple. In Afghanistan, they make a naan. It's so good. It's amazing to watch them make it. I, I have actual video, which I'll put into the next film, of them cooking naan. They have these ovens that are the most unusual ovens you've ever seen. They're, they're approximately 8 to 10 feet in depth. They look like if you if you see one standing on the outside, and they do make them out of clay, and you can go by and see them. What they'll look like is a massive pot with a big mouth, but it's more like a, a more like an amphora vase, if you know what that is. So it has a bit of a neck on top and a wide upper body, or mid body is relatively wide. The neck is narrower. But when we say narrower, we're talking like three feet across versus six feet across, right, inside. And they, they make this bread, which is without yeast. It's not a leavened bread. And they pat it into flat what looks like pancakes. It'll be flat bread. But they take it and they sling it. They build a wood fire at the bottom of this massive vertical oven. And they have a metal rod that they take and they sling it inside and it sticks to the inside of the wall of this underground oven. And then they reach down with a metal rod and they pick out the bread as it's, as it's just perfect. And they'll throw it, they literally just throw it onto a concrete floor airspace where it cools very quickly. But let me tell you, that bread coming right out of the oven is like the most amazing thing ever. And every meal has bread. It's, it's a starchy meal. It's rice. And typically, a normal meal is rice, bread, and goat, or some sort of stewed goat or lamb. Sometimes water, water buffalo. Simple. Some of the best meat I've ever had was water buffalo that had literally been driven down on the top of a minibus 
it flies all over the damn thing. They, they finished skinning it. They laid the carcass out and you just went up and you cut off the pieces of meat you wanted, stuck it on a wood stick, stuck it in the fire and did your own roasting, took some rock salt, sprinkled it on top and have a piece of naan, fresh naan. These were these non the non they had in the field. When we were at one place, they the soldiers made their own stove. It looked like a turtle, and they, in if you want to imagine a turtle shell inside that turtle was where they built the fire, and on the back of the turtle, which is if this oven was that, this is where they cooked the bread on a flat surface, and they built this all out of mud and water. That was it, the the oven. There's so much clay around that. But the one thing that always stood out in Afghanistan is how communal everything was and how much, how important the bread was. It wasn't just bread to them. The person that was a cook in the, in the ranks of the military, it was an honored place to cook the bread. And they trained each other. It had an importance. This is like in France. When you get a, a loaf of bread there, if you're in, especially you're in a more traditional village, I don't know about the big cities. And I haven't been there. To be honest with you, I haven't been to France since. I'm trying to think the last time I went. I think the last time I went was 19, I'm sorry, 2003 or 2005. No, I take, yeah, it was 2003. So it was the last 2003 or 2004. Because that was the last time I was in France. So I don't know where France is now with all its immigration stuff. But there are certain aspects of France I'm pretty certain haven't changed a whole lot. And one of those is the aspect of bread. Because it's a part of life, and they value it that way. So a chef that makes, there was a scandal in France in the late 90s. And what had happened is that a lot of the small boulangerie, which were the bakers, bread bakers, were beginning to close because the supermarché, which were the, the big supermarkets, were beginning to have their own bakers and produce this cheap bread. So the local bakers, this is late 80s, early 90s, the small bakers started to be pushed out of business. And in fact, there was a national crisis in France, the concern that they would lose the art of baking bread, what we would call artisan bread. They would lose the art of baking bread. And to the credit of the French, there was a revival. People said, no, we can't lose the sustenance of who we are as a culture because bread to them defines a lot of who they are. Probably the most famous pictures you'll see in France are somebody like an older man with a beret riding a bike, and it'll be just a three-speed bike riding down the road, and you'll have a basket in the back. There'll be like three or four baguettes sticking out. Or you'll see a picture of a young boy holding a baguette and eating it hot. And I mean, there's even cultural issues in France about you know, don't eat for your health, don't eat hot bread. It's not good for your constitution and things like this. It's very much part of them. And they valued it and they value it in every meal. And for us, it's just like, okay, what am I going to get today? I'm going to get some, some loaf that's cheaper or maybe I'll try this or that at, at the bread at store. We don't really care. We don't really ask where it comes from and we don't think of, a bread baker in a small bread bakery as that important to our daily life. But in France, it is part of your daily life. And being in a place where there's a good butcher or a good baker, obviously a good butcher too, but in this story, a good baker is very important. That's the same as in, in 
in Afghanistan. That's what I found so amazing is having a someone who could bake bread or having a good bakery nearby was critical. One of the things one of the special forces teams did is they actually funded having a, a bread oven on their base so that they could have fresh bread for all the Afghans that were working there because they knew it was that important. And then they hired a baker to come in and bake. So, I mean, they, it, it's been understood that in many, most cultures, bread, a lot of cultures, bread is extremely important, but not here because we don't value, we take it for granted. Our bread becomes sandwiches, it becomes toasted, it becomes something to put peanut butter and jelly on, it becomes a butter and jam, honey, something. And it's like, you know, we're going to have Dave's bread today, or we're going to have some other brand from Costco, we're going to get the the brand from, from Kroger or whatever, but the idea of appreciating all that goes into bread isn't something we value. And I say, I build this case around bread because it's a reflective of how we see our food. And if we don't see and value the food, which we're asked to bless, and we don't see it with the value and the, the insignificance and importance of what it is for daily life, the sustenance for daily life, then how is it that we're going to value the rest of our day and the rest of our life? And like I said, I caught myself a bit ago because I, I, I run fast on a lot of things and I have to slow down to cook. At one point in my life, I was making two or three batches of sourdough bread a week and now I don't make, hardly make sourdough. I make it once in a while, but it was active part of me. And of course we get into this frenzy in the U S where we're like, well, if you eat bread, you're going to get fat, which is actually not true. If you're using the right flours and if you're using sourdoughs, it's actually massively nutritional and super important for you. But we're, again, we, everything we have, we've become accustomed to is our flours are refined and milled down. So they're just paste. I don't know, whatever white flour is. I don't even know anymore. All we know is it's got niacin in it because we throw that chunk of crap in there every time they mill it because they're replacing the bran, which they don't include in the, in the white flour because they peel it off and they sell bran separately for your cereal or for your digestive tract. Or we're going to sell you an extra bottle of bran so when you get constipated from eating the paste flour over here, you can have the bran, which we took out, so you can buy and pay, pay twice. That, that's kind of the game of everything we do. So at the core of so much of what we need to be doing is not that difficult for change. And I think that's kind of the thing that strikes me again and again is how complicated we make this change being because we're being told that this new system we're going into, we have to accept and we're going to have to relearn our jobs and we're going to have to relearn the way we do our life and we're going to have to become transhuman and we're going to have to become different and learn to work in a, in a multiverse. And we're going to have to learn to integrate with AI. And it's like, no, because the AI is not going to be something that feeds you, but they're happy to feed you this paste and this garbage. You know, this big thing with eggs that's going on right now, so many of the problems that are occurring with eggs and beef is because people keep registering their animals with the FDA. By the way, dumb idea. 
don't. Or they're trying to make a commercial living off it, selling to commercial enterprises. They require them to register their sale. And then they come in and they slaughter the. It just happened here locally in my own county. Woman had a hundred, couple hundred, a couple hundred ducks. I said chickens the other day when I told the story, but it was a couple hundred ducks. And the couple of the restaurants really loved the quality of her duck, of her duck eggs. Two of her, three of her ducks got sick, so the FDA swooped in and slaughtered her entire group because, of course, we know that's going to be avian flu or something, right? When we get back to starting to take responsibility for our food, what goes in our body, what we grow, hand-making our things again, a couple of things happen. And I say this because I've done this very intentionally in my life and I'm in a phase right now where I'm not doing it intentionally enough and I'm kind of steering back to like, okay, this is a point where you, we can't compromise. There's meals that you can make that don't have to take three hours to prepare. But the process of preparing a meal is critical. And the process that we go through to make bread is important. It's I learned to bake bread from my grandmother. At the time that my grandmother had baked bread, she ran a cafe for years. She was an amazing baker. She made amazing pies, incredible cinnamon rolls, and she made great bread. So when I learned from her, she was arthritic. She couldn't knead the bread anymore. So the way I learned to make bread was that she'd say, and it was always, okay, Scotty, come over here. Now knead it need the bread. So she'd walk me through and I'd need it. And then she'd say, stop, let me feel it. And she'd feel the bread. And she'd say, okay, a little bit more feel. And she put my hand on it. She'd say, now feel that you feel that she said, now need it some more. And I would need it a bit more until it got to just the right place. And she'd feel it. And she's like, okay, you feel that, that light silkiness that's on there, that light, not quite sticky, but not quite dry. That's where you need to be. That was her style of bread. And that's how I learned. And it was an experience, again, that was far beyond just the bread. I don't even know how, I couldn't, couldn't tell you if the bread was good tasting or great tasting or whatever. I'm sure it was good because it was her recipe. And I have my own that I do now because I've literally baked thousands of loaves of bread. No exaggeration. But I always find when I do bread, just how fundamental how primal, how cathartic, and how spiritual it is all at one moment. Because it reminds us of a process that you can't rush. There's only so much you can do. You can try to cheat. You can throw an extra yeast to jack up the, the rate of, of rise. You can go real sticky instead of going perhaps more silky and feel. You can make a batter bread if you want. There's a lot of end arounds you can do. But if you're just going to make a basic bread, like a sourdough is a good example. You can't rush sourdough yeast. I know some people that'll jack up sourdough and try to add extra dry yeast to it, but then you're not doing sourdough. And if you're going to do true sourdough, it's going to take 7, 12 hours in a process. It could, some people I know do sourdough, it takes 48 hours because they, they run that sourdough over a couple of days to increase the sourness of the bread. And what's happening there is we're starting to appreciate the experience of creation. And as we start to slow down on these simple things like this, everything around us starts to take on new value. And that's 
where I think it's so important to realize that the fundamentals of change in a society don't have to begin with riots, <laughs> definitely not riots, other than just to piss off a lot of people. They don't begin with necessarily making massive strategic changes in life. Because our society right now is so broken that the only way we're going to be able to fix it is to reset our moral foundation. And to do that, we have to get back to fundamentals, which will reinforce the principles of living as children of God. There is nowhere in the Bible, at least that I can find, that talks about making our lives go faster and crazier and trying to digest more information and increase the frenetic rate at which we do everything. Nowhere does it say that. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that, our, that our, we are supposed to transition into a higher, more efficient processing machine. There's a lot in the Bible about praying. There's a lot in the Bible about trusting in heaven to provide. There's a lot in the Bible about breaking bread and eating. There's a lot of metaphors in the Bible about food, about the sustenance of life in a time when they didn't have grocery stores, in a time when you didn't have fast food drive throughs And yes, they had vendors that sold food, I'm sure. But at the end of the day, all the food was hand-prepared. And it teaches us a different perspective and a different pace and a calming and a temperance to walk in the world. To me, that's radical change. Tonight, after I finished with Bards FM, I unloaded the ATV and I went fast. <laughs> I'm all over fast because I can. Because it reminded me that the machines that we build go fast. And it's fun. Don't get me wrong. But what was really the best of it all is that it was cold. And I didn't have, I had a light top on. And it was the feeling of the air. And the smell of the outside. And the moment to pause at a certain point and look up and see the clear sky. That in the midst of going fast on the ATV, which I like to do, there's also a moment to stop, to breathe, to pause. When it comes down to our sustenance and our spiritual nurturing and nourishment, we need to take time and slow down. And when we start to make be intentional about our things, which I personally believe begins in one of the most fundamental places in the home, which is the kitchen, then we start to change the entire nature of how we live. So there's a little village outside of Minervois, which was in the south of France. It was about two and a half hours from Toulouse. 
and Minervois is the region. It was the town that's there is nearby is well known as Carcassonne. And Carcassonne is a old castle town. And out in the region of Minervois, which produces the Minervois wine, which is actually spectacular because it's one of these very rich soils that leaves a flavor of the wine, of the soil in the wine in a very unique way. There's a little village of La Conetta. And it's a village of about 12, 10 families at the time. There's about 10 families. They're all winemakers. I remember going into one of their homes. It's their old farmhouses. The bedrooms are upstairs, staircase up. There's a small, did you come in? There's a small, there's a kitchen, family room kitchen. And then there's a small room off to the side, which is kind of like the office. But the center point of the home was the kitchen. The fireplace was there. That's where they used to do most of the roasting of meat. The table was in the middle because that's where you sat. And as someone cooked, others would sit, they would talk. The communal sense was that the center of the home was the kitchen, which means that food was at the center. And it's just amazing to me how far we've drifted from that in our own country, in our own time. We need food to survive. We need our spiritual nourishing and we need our physical nourishment. And so as much as we value the word of God, we have to value or should be valuing the gifts of God, which are the things that we put in our bodies. And so that leads us to the final point, which is this nature of this convenient society, which is a place where everything is acquired. We go to Costco to get hors d'oeuvres for an evening, or you might go to somewhere else to pick up other things. It doesn't matter what it is. But we find places to cut the time rather than doing it. My parents used to have parties with friends, social parties, great ones. My dad was a piano player and a trombonist. Used to get together with some friends. They would play. They'd come over. They'd have, I don't know, 15, 20 different couples over. And my mom and I were talking about this the other night. Every hors d'oeuvre, and she usually usually had five to seven hors d'oeuvres out. Every one she handmade and cooked in the oven. What a different time. There was a, so just kind of close out with one last story. I was invited over to a house, to a friend's house in, Af- in France, Southern France. I was in Southern France for about six months. And um, it was a very unusual dinner. <laughs> You had uh, a big table, and this was Mediterranean Southern type cuisine. Um, and you had at the table you had a supporter of Mitterrand, which at the time was the socialist. You had a card carrying communist. You had a supporter of Chirac Le Pen, who at the time was considered fascist. And then there was another guy that was actually an even more extreme fascist. 
And then you had myself as the token American. And then you had a couple other folks there. And the big table. And this is what I always remarked at in the proper sense of values. All the food was hand-cooked. And so we begin the evening with a light hors d'oeuvre, which is probably cheese, as I recall, and some wine. And the conversations begin. And the French love to debate politics, let me tell you. They love it. And so as these debates are going on and they're getting more and more intense and people are starting to bang on the tables and they're you know, getting very vocal at one another across the way, you have the communist talking to the fascist and the socialist talking to the communist and the fascist and you have all this crazy stuff going on. And it's quite amazing to witness as they pour more wine and they get more intense. And in walks the woman of the house and she brings the first dish. And suddenly it's a salad. The first, I think they went salad first as I call it. And everybody stops. Oh, madame, madame. Mm, some boom. It smells good. And so they, they praise the meal and they praise her work. And as it continues and as, the, as everybody's enjoying every bite, because they do, then as they start to get finished with their serving, they begin to start their discussions again. And it begets, it starts to amp up and you get more and more intensity. And then comes the next wave, which I, the main, it was about a, typically French meals run about three to five courses and they're just course after course. So we eventually get to the main course, which is the cassiole, which is a big bean dish with a big sausage on top. And she brings that in, and this is the this is like peak crazy of the sort of arguments that are going on, and they're almost screaming at each other. And she just quietly walks in and puts the dish in front of everybody. Completes uh, completely stops the conversation. They look at each other. They look at the dish. They begin to, oh la 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 la, madame, madame, oh ce sent bon, mm, mon dieu. And it begins. And the entire moment shifts to the presence of the food. There's absolute peace. There's absolute enjoyment in everything that's there. And we go through the final piece with the dessert. Every time, same cycle. And so the final end of the meeting, as of the evening, everybody is hugging and saying good night and the French do the bise, which is a, a, it depends on where you are. In some places it's a kiss on each cheek. Sometimes it's three kisses, one each on, it's a kiss. It's not really a kiss. It's more of a, a cheek to cheek thing. It's just there. It's the way they express. But my point of all of this is in the craziness of everything. And this moment stood out for me so much. Is it in the craziness of everything and the intensity of the debate and all the conversations about politics and Le Pen, Le Mitterrand, and the fascists and the, all this other stuff, the one thing that brought everybody together, the one thing that brought peace, the one thing that quieted everything down and put the focus in the right place was the food, literally breaking bread. 
Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you just for the experiences that you've blessed me with and being able to see the world in so many different ways and through that always finding a way to see the world and experience it in one way or another through food. And you understand more than anybody what I just said, Father. The idea that we can bridge so many spaces with food, that we can sit with one another with extreme differences and appreciate a moment of breaking bread, to have those conversations that as we work together and sit together, even in extreme experiences, we can find solutions together as we take time to share the gift of the blessing and the nourishment of what you give us as food. What we pray tonight is to return to that, to step back from this insanity of this processed garbage that they're trying to feed us, to get back to the wholesomeness of growing and using only food that's natural and blessed on this land, to begin this revolution in a simple way, to literally make bread, to slow down, to feel the dough, to feel the rise of life, and to watch that creation that begins with water and a little starter or yeast and a little flour and salt, and watch what it becomes as we take time to shape it with our hands, to care for it and let it rest and to let it grow and rise and then to bake it and to share it with another, a true blessing. Let us seek that again, not as something we do occasionally, but as something we do naturally and always. To take time to bake bread and share it with our neighbor or somebody else and to just have some conversation over a slice of bread. Guide us, bless us, and we say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. There was a peace treaty that I ended up negotiating in Afghanistan. More story than I'm going to give it tonight, but the point of that is it took a lot of months. A lot of months. And what it took a lot of months of was sitting with some very different people of very differing opinions and different levels of trust, but building the trust over breaking bread, eating rice, and a lot of goat. But my point is we shared the meals together. And over the t- process of time, we built a trust that led to a very significant peace treaty. We can do this and change this world. And it's not, doesn't have to be violent. Doesn't say there isn't violence. But the primary motive has to be to change our relationship with God and in this world and what is truly spiritually nurturing to build bridges 
and to reestablish a new way of operating in this crazy and ever increasingly fast world, we need to slow down and breathe. Patriots, keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press on, press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God always wins. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We are at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. I'll see you tomorrow for Bended Knee until then or until the next time. God bless. Good night. Thank you. And out for now. Oh, I want to feel something. I just want to breathe again. Dive into the deepest end. Oh, I want to feel something. Let me get back in my body.